This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest today is V.S. Ram Chandran, who is director of the Center for Brain and Cognition and distinguished professor with the Psychology Department and Neurosciences Program at the University of California, San Diego. He is also adjunct professor of biology at the Salk Institute. He is the 2016 Forster Lecturer on the Immortality of the Soul at UC Berkeley. Welcome to our program, Doctor. Thank you, Harry. I'm delighted to be here. Where were you born and raised? I was born in Chennai in India, and early early school years was schooling was in Chennai. But then I also spent part part of my time in Bangkok, Thailand, where my father was a diplomat. And and looking back, how did your parents shape your thinking about the world? My father was a bit aloof by and large, a man of the world, and always wanted to push me into medicine and do well in life. My mother was more idealistic and religious, involved, steeped in Indian mythology and tradition. So I had these two different influences on my life. Uh, my mother was more academically inclined, too. And, and who, who pushed you into sciences, or was that just something you embraced on your own? I embraced on my own, but partly I had very good teachers in school. I went to a, a, a British school. In, in India in, now? In, in Thailand. In, in Thailand, yeah. My, my father worked for the United, United Nations there. And I had a teacher named Mrs. Vanit, Mrs. Panachura, and they were, uh, would demonstrate chemistry experiments in the lab, give us chemicals to take to our homes to experiment with, something that would never happen this day and age because of uh, liability issues. And then we would, I remember uh, Mrs. Panachura showing us if you take a piece of, if you take a nail, an iron nail, put it in copper sulfate, a blue solution, the iron became copper. This is like magic. You have a blue solution. You can't see anything red in it. You put an iron nail in it, and it becomes red, becomes copper. How is this possible? And that's how we got started on chemistry. And, and what was it about science at that early age that, that attracted you, besides the good teachers, obviously? I think the idea that it's, in, in a funny way, the idea that it's divorced from the real world, that you have this microcosm where you are, you're on your own and you can do your experiments with a few kindred spirits. I felt isolated from other kids. I was not very much into sports. One other kid named Somtao Sucharitko, Cookie, was a classmate of mine. He and I would sneak off and do experiments in, in the basement. And, and there must, uh, it's from what you said about your mother, there, there must be an influence there in, in sort of seeing things that are latent, basically, because you see the experiment, you see what happens, but to understand it, you have to come to understand laws that aren't, aren't visible in a way. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's that specific, more the general academic slam to my mind, exploring natural phenomena, making discoveries, that came from my mother, the urge to do that. But the, the specific strategy of doing experiments, the excitement of doing experiments, came from my school teachers primarily, I think. I like to think it's partly also innate, but who knows. And, and you, you wound up doing experiments on your own as a young person? Yeah, or? but always in consultation with my teachers. You know, I'd do it at home, go to t- tell my teachers about it. They get excited about it. They tell the other students. It was a very, very iterative process those days. And, and what was it like growing up in Thailand? Did you experience that setting and that culture, or were you isolated? 
I was uh, more or less isolated. I, was, I went to this school called Bangkok British School or Patana School. And uh, the teachers were excellent. That made a huge, big difference. Very inspiring and, and uh, inspired teachers. And so when you went on to college, where did you go to college? And was it inevitable that you would do the sciences? Well, uh, yeah. I, I decided very early on I was going to go to, go to science. And I went to, uh, I decided on a career in medicine. My father was insistent that I take medicine rather than science. He was worried about you making a living. Right, especially in India at that, 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 that time. It would be very difficult to make a career out of pure science. So, and my mother encouraged me to do science. So I was conflicted. And then my, my couple, one of my uncles, one of my aunts, is a, and one of my cousins is a distinguished physician. And she told me you can you get the best of both worlds by doing medicine because you can have one foot in academic science and academic medicine, one foot in medical practice. If you ever fail as a scientist, you can always be a good doctor. <laughs> and, and so what, in the early years, what, in, what subfields in science attracted you? Uh, I would say mostly chemistry very early on. It was exciting. Just the bang, big bang, and the uh, colorful displays put it crudely, but also just the notion that from a few elementary interactions, the whole spectrum of phenomena in the universe is derived from these elementary interactions, the periodic table and things of that nature. So that excited me in chemistry. Biology was interesting because of its complexity, so I was always interested in evolution and fossils and dinosaurs, as most kids are. I was interested in archaeology. If you think about these things, archaeology, chemistry, and uh, paleontology and evolution, most kids are interested in this, and they lose interest very quickly. I don't know why. I just happen to retain this interest. And if I weren't doing neurology, I'd be doing probably uh, archaeology or, or evolutionary biology, developmental biology. And, and uh, we'll talk about this later, but evolution is something still in the, in the back of your mind uh, as you look for the origins uh, of phenomena in the brain. Absolutely. Now, what, what about medicine? What, uh, one thing that must have really made a difference in your life in, in medicine was the clinical experience. Absolutely, Actually. yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. And uh, a bit like Conan Doyle being inspired by his teacher to write Sherlock Holmes novels. Uh, pardon the lofty comparison, but what, what I meant, meant to say is that when, when you're doing medicine, Often you have little clues you have to latch on to. In those days, you know, we don't have CT, we don't have MR, we don't have fancy diagnostic tools. So very often, very quickly, you have to arrive at what we call a spot diagnosis based on a few simple clues you see in the patient. And also talking to the patient is important. Exactly. So one of the first things every medical student is taught is that 90% of the time you can arrive at the diagnosis from the history. You don't need to do any testing. And then the physical exam will clinch the diagnosis. You don't need to do any lab tests most of the time. This is no longer practiced, of course. We don't need to, in a sense. But that gives you the, emphasizes the detective, like the Sherlock Holmes aspect of medicine. And, and you also obtained a PhD? Yeah. From India, I went to Cambridge, England, obtained a PhD in visual neuroscience and visual psychophysical perception. And so you, you lay the groundwork for what will later become your study of the brain. And and vision was the study of perception and vision was an important stepping stone to the way you would think about the brain. That's a very accurate description. 
When I was in India, I was fascinated by neurology, but not much research I could do at that time. And I found we could do experiments in vision using very simple equipment, which is available at that time. And in, what I specialize in is studying visual illusions. You look at the world, it's all out there, and we think you take it for granted. And you open your eyes in the morning, and voila, it's all out there. You take it for granted. But in fact, you think about it, there's too little distorted image in your eyeball. What you see is a three-dimensional world out there. How does this transformation come about? It's taking place in all the visual areas in your brain. So the brain is using a code, a symbolic creating a symbolic description of objects and events in the world. And we're like cryptographers trying to crack this alien code. That's what the study of vision is. So an illusion is an anomaly. Uh, it gives you a golden key to understanding normal visual function. You, you actually uh, uh, quote uh, in your book at the beginning of one of the chapters, you quote Sir Sherlock Holmes and you say, where Holmes says, I know, my dear Watson, that you share my love of all that is bizarre and outside the conventions uh, and humdrum routine of everyday life. So that's another element that yeah. came into your into your thinking. Hallucinations and then the bizarre in a way. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if that's healthy or not, and I don't know how much it's helped my research, but I like to think it has. Uh, I go after anomalies or things which seem like odd oddities, which people have ignored for a long time. And neurology is full of oddities and anomalies. Uh, you know, there are, there are syndromes which, which nobody has studied, which have been around for 100 years. And we have made, it a, made a career out of this, of going to the, to the clinic, bringing the patient from the clinic to the laboratory, studying them intensively, finding out what's wrong with them, hope, and then sometimes devising a therapy. We did this with synesthesia. It's not a patient, but an otherwise normal person. Every time he sees a number, he sees a particular color. He did it with phantom limbs. Now, of course, the strategy doesn't always work. You only hear the success stories. Nine out of, nine out of ten times, we fail. And it's, just, it's just some kooky disorder, you know, sometimes outright bogus. I'll give you an example of this. Uh, there's a disorder called Duclarembol syndrome. Have you heard of this? No, no. Well, this refers to, it's, it's officially recognized by the psychiatry establishment. It refers to a young woman who develops a delusion that his old, rich, famous man is madly in love with her, but is in denial about it. It's an actual named syndrome. Of course, it's nonsense. There's no such syndrome. And ironically, there's no name for the equivalent syndrome, but an older, famous, rich gentleman <laughs> develops a delusion that this young hottie is in love with him, but is in denial about it. This is much more common, mm-hmm. undoubtedly because syndromes are described by male psychiatrists. So, so, it, so this is the, the stuff of screenplays, but That's not correct. of neurology. No, not of neurology, yeah. There's another one called chronic underachievement syndrome, which we used to call stupidity. <laughs> uh, you, in your book, uh, I think in, in the epilogue, you have a quote which I want to read now. You say, neurology, we now are at the same stage that chemistry was in the 19th century, discovering the basic elements, grouping them into categories, and studying their interactions. I raise that because one of the things that come up in your background in your early years, you were fascinated by 19th century science and the simplicity of the early experiments when the fields were being established. Talk a little about that. Yeah, I mean, all the famous experiments in science should be included in our undergraduate curriculum, I think, as a separate course, 
And we're starting to do this at UCSD and it should be done in all the UC campuses, indeed all the universities. For example, uh, take Faraday. You know, he took a wire, simply out of a punch he had, took a coil and then moved a, a rod, an iron rod to and fro in the coil and generated an electric current, thereby bridging two completely unrelated, seemingly unrelated fields of physics, electricity and magnetism. It took him five minutes to do the experiment. Another one of my favorite examples is Newton's prism experiment. I'm stating the obvious here. Everybody learns about this in school, mm-hmm. but just to recap. Everybody thinks Newton passed white light through a prism and discovered it's made of seven colors. In fact, that's not true. Known long before Newton, people were using chandeliers for that reason. They knew white light would be converted to colors. But people thought it was because of impurities in the glass, in the prism, was converting the white light into colored, colored spectrum. Newton said it's not impurities in the glass. It's because white light is made up of seven wavelengths. And so what they did was is the, the critics kept claiming that it was dust, impurities in the glass. The people who supported Newton spent years and years, decades, polishing the glass, removing the impurities, and showing the colors were still there. This went on and on for years and years. No matter how pure the glass was, the critics would claim there's some impurities in there. And Newton looked at this debate, and it took him five minutes to disprove the opposition. All he did was he took the prism, passed it through it, passed white light through it, split it into seven colors, and he put another prism upside down. Now, with impurities, it become even more colorful. In fact, it turns back into white light. This is what he calls the crucial experiment. So in, 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 in science, it's not, it doesn't work if you just keep on doing more and more experiments to prove your point. What's important is to do the crucial experiment for the experiment on hand. So I was fascinated by the simplicity of, of Newton's approach, and indeed hundreds of Victorian scientists, not just Newton. Uh, it's interesting because that, that embrace of a 19th century science combined with you, you were working in India and then in Thailand, a place where low-tech was a, not only a virtue, but it was a, it was necessity. a necessity. Yes. Talk a little about that, because it, what, what I'm really getting a sense of is how these forces all, from your background, come together to, to shape where you were going to go. Yes, I mean, especially in clinical medicine, the absence of technology, high-tech diagnostic techniques, we had to rely on intuition, rely on logic, rely on simple observation on the patient using sort of a Bayesian approach uh, and then come up, come, up, come up with a plausible diagnosis. And 90% of the time you have your diagnosis right there. So the emphasis on simplicity of, 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 and, and, and elegance of, of, of approaching the problem rather than... It's, not, it's, driven, it's concept driven, not methodology driven. I always believe that about science. Now, you don't want to be a Luddite. Obviously, science is driven by technology. Where would we, where would we be without the microscope or telescope? And they opened up whole worlds. But the instrument should, be a, should not be the end in itself. And, and so in, in a funny way, the, all the technology now is, is for you a dessert, basically, because you really yeah. are starting out at a very simple, conceptual level, interacting with the patient, and then maybe using the machinery to confirm or disconfirm. That's absolutely right. That's yeah. exactly the way it should be done. Not, not a fishing expedition. Very often you, you, you adopt the role of a five-year-old child given a knife. Five-year-old child given a knife just goes and cuts everything. That, that, should, not be, that should not happen, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I like to ask my guests what they see as the skills and temperament uh, that students should manifest or acquire or learn 
so that they can do the work, in your case, of studying the brain. Well, I think studying any area of science, to become, crea- to become a creative scientist who enjoys what you do, it's important to hang around people who are passionate about what they do. I mean, it seems like an obvious thing, but there's nothing more contagious than passion. So that's the first thing. And then read widely outside your field, not just in your own narrow cul-de-sac. Because often cross-fertilization of ideas is what leads to major discoveries in science. And I also notice, and this may be an odd thing to say, uh, humor helps. Mm-hmm. And, and some of my b- best experiments came out of jokes, saying this guy has a phantom limb, what would happen if you put a mirror in front of him? Or what would happen if you touch his face? Um, I can give you lots of examples, but... So, so there's mm-hmm. a, the, joking, but also there's a, a playfulness. Of, that's a playful, correct. Yeah. That's, that's, that's correct. The playfulness is important because in humor, humor involves an unusual juxtaposition of ideas, seeing things from a novel vantage point. Mm-hmm. That's also the basis of scientific creativity. So it may not be a coincidence that one can often lead to the other. Mm-hmm. And, and in a way, in humor, implicit in humor is a sense of the structure, which is, that is how things hold together in a way, and then making a humorous comment. And people may not see the structure, but they get the humor. That's correct. Yeah. And, and what about patience uh, as, as part of the, the temperament? Because it must be the case in, in your work that uh, uh, a lot of uh, what you think may be a useful concept turns out to be a dead end. That often happens. You mean patience or patience? Uh, uh, patience, patience meaning impatient to, versus patience. Yeah, yeah, not being impatient. Right. Being able, and, and this must go with the playfulness to sort of hold things, look at them, go in a particular direction, but then find out it's you have not no the to right. give up too. Yeah. As I mentioned, there are these bogus syndromes. Yeah. And uh, you can waste a lifetime studying the bogus syndromes. So you have to know. You have to have tenacity, but you also have to have good judgment enough to realize that this is a dead end. And patience is, of course, a virtue in this case. Now, you, you at one point in your book, you say something which I found intriguing. You said, if an elaborate theory cannot predict what your grandmother knows, human, using common sense, then it isn't worth much. So the, the simplicity and elegance in method also leads to uh, a simplicity instead of in, in stating what you think is going on. Yeah, I think that the grandmother example is the twofold. First of all, it should, <clears throat> you should be able to express your ideas clearly enough that your grandmother understands it. If I do an experiment on phantom limbs, I should be able to t- tell my grandmother, this is what we did. She should say, wow. So if it doesn't excite or surprise your grandmother, there's something wrong with your experiment. It's not always true, of course, but it's a rough rule of thumb. I think that's what I was getting at there. You keep mentioning the phantom limb experiment. Tell us a little about that, because our audience might not be familiar with it. Yeah. There are two experiments we did, or actually three experiments we did. One was when you amputate an arm or a leg, patient continues to vividly feel the presence of that missing arm for weeks, months, decades, as long as 30 or 40 years. And often it's excruciatingly painful. Now, one of the things we found was if you touch the patient's face on the ipsilateral side, so let's say I'm the patient and the left arm is missing, and I take a Q-tip and touch the left side of the face, the patient feels the sensations in his missing phantom arm. 
and other phantom limbs have been studied for over a century, people haven't discovered there's a map of the hand, a complete map of the hand on the face of these patients. Not all of them, but many of them. So here's a mystery fit for Sherlock Holmes, right? Mm-hmm. Why does this happen? Why would you touch somebody's face and he feels it in his missing arm? And it turns out that the, the hand portion of the map, in the, the entire body surface is mapped on the surface of the brain a control on the side, in a vertical strip. It's a complete map of the body surface, including the hand, face, everything. And it's a systematic map, point to point. It turns out that the map of the hand is right next to the map of the face in the brain. So when you remove the hand, the hand area of the brain becomes hungry for new sensory inputs, deprived of input, and it becomes hungry for new input. So the face input, which is adjacent, invades the territory corresponding to the missing hand and activates the cells there. So there's a sort of cross-wiring going on. So that part of the brain now signals, even though you're touching the face, it, it misinterprets the signals as coming from the missing phantom hand. Therefore, you say, my hand is being touched. And, and this and shows that the brain is capable of considerable reorganization, even in an adult, in a matter of a few days. And, and when you started out, the notion of placidity, placid, placidity was not generally accepted. And that that is a major insight that has come to neurology. That's correct. The notion of neuroplasticity, there, there, was, there was always a minority group who thought it was important, but it was not widely accepted. And no, nobody had shown it in an adult human brain in a simple manner that, that we had set out to do. The other experiment on phantom limbs, by the way, is if you... Many people have an arm that's fixed or immobilized. They have a paralyzed phantom limb. Sounds like an oxymoron, but they do. Uh, and it's frozen, and it's often an excruciatingly painful position like that. And I said, what if you get the guy to volitionally open the hand to make it less painful? And I tell the patient this, and he laughs at me, and he says, I've been trying that for years, and it, it doesn't work. I can't volitionally mm-hmm. unclench my fa- clenched mm-hmm. phantom hand. The nails are digging into my palm. It's painful. So he hit on the idea of putting a mirror there so he could then clench his normal hand, Look at the reflection of the normal hand in the mirror. It'll look like he's seeing his phantom hand clenched. He's actually seeing the mirror reflection of the normal hand. Then he would send commands to both hands to open. He'd unclench the normal hand. It looked like his phantom hand, which has been resurrected by the mirror, is now unclenching. He's getting visual feedback telling him, hey, look, your phantom is moving again. It's unclenching. And that's not surprising. It's just an optical trick. What's surprising is it causes the phantom to actually move it animates the phantom, the, animate, the phantom hand opens, and the pain is relieved, often instantly. And this has now been confirmed in clinical trials and has been used throughout the world as a treatment for phantom limb pain. And, and so what, what should we understand here, that the fact that the limb is gone has not registered with the brain? That's, that's the main source of the phantom limb, but there are many things going on in terms of the pain, which is still being explored. But what we have, meanwhile, is a simple hunch which led to a discovery that, that enables us to treat the pain. What's even more surprising is another disease called RSD, reflex sympathetic dystrophy, which is also considered intractable. See, normally when you, have a, when you think of pain, there are actually two kinds of pain. One is chronic pain, which is like a pain of a fracture uh, or a bee sting, and the pain then immobilizes the hand. So you have a fracture of the metacarpal bone, say hairline fracture, can still be excruciatingly painful, immobilized, inflamed, swollen, and painful. 
the acute pain, like you're touching a kettle, you withdraw the hand. So you mobilize the hand. Nothing else happens, you're fine. But chronic pain is different. It leads to inflammation, swelling, redness, and pain. All, it leads to all of those things. Now, usually, in a matter of a uh, few days or a week, the, you know, the injury heals, and when the injury heals, the pain subsides, swelling subsides, the redness goes away, the warmth goes away, everything back to normal. But in about 1% of people, this doesn't happen. The pain persists. The injury, even after the injury is healed, the pain persists with the vengeance. The swelling persists. The redness persists. The warmth persists. Not only persists, it extends into the hand. The entire hand becomes swollen, red, and painful. The entire arm becomes red, swollen, and painful. And you're stuck with this for life, for decades. And it's exclusively painful and torments the patient for, for, for the entire life, her entire life. How do you treat this? Extraordinarily, we had, the, we had the idea of using mirrors, and we suggested this, and, and other groups have tried this. You put a mirror there, and you look at the pic, you look at the reflection of the normal hand, or non-swollen hand in the mirror, optically superposed on the swollen hand. So the swollen hand looks normal. Then you move your normal hand, the swollen, quote-unquote, paralyzed hand starts moving again, mm. feels like it's moving. Not only feels like it's moving, it actually starts moving. And the swelling subsides, and the redness subsides. You put a thermometer there, you can measure the change in temperature. All from visual feedback through a mirror. And this is the first time anybody has devised a, a simple, non-invasive treatment for RSD, and it's a treatment of choice now being used throughout the world for RSD. What, what led you to the mirror? Was it just a coincidence? Was it? A, well, no, not entirely. I said, this guy is missing his arm. And uh, he feels that if, 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 if only he could move it, move his phantom, it would relieve, relieve him of pain. So how do I make him move his phantom? And there, there is no arm to move that. Then I said, maybe you can visually resurrect the phantom. Maybe use virtual reality. Then I saw this $5 mirror lying around in the lab. And I said, why use virtual reality when you can use a $5 mirror? So I placed the mirror there and then used it to resurrect his phantom. So it was all through accidents and circumstances. But my mind was primed to to uh, think of this possibility. Do, do you think that virtual reality, as that technology is developed, will be in, an important element in interfacing with these visual mechanisms? That yeah, absolutely. The yeah. For example, the mirror can be only used in unilateral amputees. Yeah. One arm is missing, you use the other arm to optically create the illusion that the other, missing arm has come back. But if you have both arms amputated, you can't use a mirror, you need to use virtual reality. And in fact, the parameters are easier to control. So now there are many, many, many groups throughout the world implementing virtual reality for stroke paralysis, for RSD, for phantom pain, for, for all these different types of neurological disorders. In, in talking about your methodology, I, I notice a methodology. You've, you've, you've talked about science should be problem-driven. So, so on the one hand, it's problem-driven, but insight comes from anomalies, basically, and those two things interact with your foundation in what has come out of different sciences, in your case, the, the visual sciences that you studied. Yeah, I mean, anomalies often have the power to drive new discoveries, new directions of research. Classic example, of course, is continental drift, where uh, you know, Wagner saw the west coast of Africa making a perfect fit with the east coast of, uh, of Brazil. 
and then looked at all the continents seemed to fit. And he said, how is this possible? And everybody laughed at him, saying that it's absurd, it's just coincidence. And he pushed his idea forward. It's a classic example of an anomaly, later turning out to be very important as a driving force in science, in that case in geology. Another example is bacterial transformation, where you take uh, pneumococcus A and incubate it with pneumococcus B, two, one strain of bacterium and incubate it with another strain of bacterium, and strain B changes into strain A. This is reported long before the discovery of DNA, about a decade before the discovery of DNA. But it produced, had no impact at all in the world of science. So here I am taking one, one species of bacterium, incubating with another species of bacterium, A changes into B, and it had absolutely no impact on the world of science. Hmm. And I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating. There may be one or two people who perked up, but by and large, it had no, no impact. Now, supposing I bring a goat to the room, and, and then bring a pig to the room, put them in the room, out come two goats, what would you say? Mm-hmm. You jump up and down and say, my God. Yeah. Well, that's what these guys had done. It just was bacteria rather than goats and pigs. But nobody paid any attention because it didn't fit mainstream thinking in science. The notion of immutability of species was so entrenched. The notion that you could trans- change one species to another species was not acceptable. And then somebody came along and said, you can just take the juice of the bacteria and inject it. Juice turned out to be DNA. So DNA was the genetic material. People focused on that, discovered the genetic code, and the rest is history. And I can give you hundred, dozens and dozens of examples of history of science where turning points were anomalies or oddities. Not the only way of doing science, but it's one way of approaching it. And, and, uh, in, in your background, uh, it's very interesting because you have a philosophical sense of uh, the big issues that we need to address in the long term. But in the short term, since neurology sort of is in its early stages of development, if we compare it to 19th century science, uh, we, we are still mapping the brain uh, and figuring out what part is related to what anomaly or to what function. So your, your medical background, as I understand it, leads you to a clinical approach to actually find patients or patients come to you with anomalies and you really believe and for you it has worked to explore these anomalies, to validate them, to make sure there actually is a pathology there and then relate that to the mapping of of the brain. Exactly. A couple of examples come to my clinical applications. One is uh, the concept of mirror neurons, uh, which is widely publicized these days, where neurons in the front of your brain ordinarily fire motor neurons, called motor neurons, garden variety motor neurons. They fire when you wiggle, uh, the messages go through the spinal cord, out to the peripheral nerves, to the muscles, and I wiggle my finger or rub my thumb. They're done by motor neurons. Now, 10% of these motor command neurons in the front of the brain will also fire when you wiggle your thumb. And I'm simply watching you with nothing supernatural here. Visual input is transformed into, it's, it's computed to create an internal representation in my brain of your finger wiggling. So the same neuron is firing as when I wiggle my finger, as when you wiggle your finger. And I'm watching you wiggle your finger. So I'm creating a virtual reality representation of your movements, your anticipating, your impending movements in my brain. Now, okay, this is fascinating. It's a sort of mind-reading neuron, 
allowing me to predict your actions, predicting, predicting your intentions, and so on and so forth. That much everybody agrees. But you could say it's an arcane phenomenon. What, what, what uses it clinically? Well, one of the things that a student of mine, Jalal Balan, and I have been exploring is OCD, which is, again, a strange anomaly, obsessive-compulsive hand-washing rituals. Where people, when they touch a doorknob, they feel the urge to incessantly wash their hands with soap and water, go to the bathroom repeatedly, make sure it's completely spick and span before they return. It's extremely, really major impediment to their lifestyle. So we thought we hit on the idea of simply saying, well, why do you have to wash your hand? There are mirror neurons. Why not just watch somebody else wash their hand? Mm. Now, this seems like a kooky idea. It seems like a joke when you first thought of it. Mm-hmm. But it turns out it works in some patients. When they, get the, when they touch the doorknob and they get the urge to wash their hand, they simply watch another person washing their hand. They get relief. Not only that, you can create a videotape of somebody washing their hand. They get relief. Now, the next step to that is creating an app. So when they get the urge, all they need to do is look at themselves, a videotape of themselves washing their own hands, and produce relief. So this is a surprisingly simple solution to a very, very intractable problem. Now, we need to do clinical trials with placebos to make sure this works. All our experiments in mirrors and phantom limbs and RSD have been tested in pimple-blind controlled trials. This has not been tested yet. But if it holds up, it's an example of clinical application. And, and you also believe that mirror neurons uh, uh, can help us understand autism. Yeah. Well, mirror neurons are undoubtedly involved in empathy and in constructing what we call a theory of mind, an imitation, and, and a lot of those human attributes which, which we take for granted, which are part of, uh, part of being human. And we were struck by the fact that these are the very abilities that are often missing in autistic children. So the link was obvious to mirror, ne- mirror neuron deficit in autism, and we found some preliminary results. But right now the evidence is in turmoil. About half the labs in the world claim that the mirror neuron deficiency in autism. Half the labs claim that there's nothing, no, no difference in mirror neuron activity. So I would say the evidence is suggestive but not compelling. And we need to wait for the dust to settle. settle. And, and in the way your, your, your mind works as you study the mind, what, what struck you and led you down this path is when you list what we know that neuron, uh, mirror neurons are known to do, and you list the deficiencies of an autistic person, those two mesh, mesh, perfectly, mesh yeah. perfectly. And so that is what opens a door for you to explore this, even if ultimately it's disproven. Yeah, it's fine to be disproved because, as Darwin said, that you know, false conjectures don't do any harm in science so long as they're plausible. Because in, in disproving them, people great, take great delight. So you made a lot of people happy. <laughs> and, and, and science is, as uh, I learned from uh, Dr. Ciceron last week, is, is self-correcting. Yeah. And that, that's what its, its, its great virtue is. Yeah, psychologically speaking, it's, it's, if you get all, everything wrong, then, then of course it's troubling. But if you have a good track record of getting, let's say, four out of five things right on average, then you're doing well. So you establish your credentials and then you have fun going on speculative fishing expeditions that, that, that's acceptable in science. Now, now, The only thing is when you're speculating, you have to be absolutely clear when you're walking on thin ice. You're saying this is speculative. We don't know yet. We haven't done the experiments. It's just a theory. Whereas when you've actually shown it, then you can claim that you've shown it. People often don't make that distinction. Even, even eminent scientists 
and science writers don't make that distinction. It's important for the scientist to make it clear because the reader doesn't have the expertise to know when you're speculating and when you're on, on, on sure footing. Now, uh, interestingly enough, your uh, focus on mirror neurons also leads you to uh, a door that allows you to speculate on culture and how culture is transmitted and what separates humans from apes. Uh, talk a little about that because this is a, is a case where you move from the particular, you move from the pathology, but then you see a way to talk about uh, how we transmit culture. Right. Well, there are two aspects of mirror neurons I would emphasize. One is the practical aspect, which is often overlooked in the clinic. And the other aspect is the theoretical aspect, which is what you're alluding to. I just mentioned a practical example of OCD being treated. Mm-hmm. and that we, need, we need to see if that holds up. Another example is, by the way, I'm going off on a tangent here, but another example is we know there are sensory mirror neurons as well in addition to motor mirror neurons. If you go to the sensory cortex in the brain, the touch neurons, if I touch you, somebody touched me, my touch neuron fires. But if I watch you being touched, the same touch neuron fires. This is called, uh, you can call them empathy neurons. I like to call them Gandhi neurons because they dissolve the barrier between self and others. Now, it turns out, however, even though the same neurons are firing, if somebody touches me or I'm watching you being touched, when I watch you being touched, I empathize, but I don't say, I don't literally feel the sensation in my hand. Somebody pokes you with a needle, somebody pokes me with a needle, cells in my pain neurons in my anterior cingulate fire. Somebody touch, pokes you with a needle, a subset of my, my anterior cingulate neurons fire, the same subset fires. So why don't I shout ouch when I watch you being poked? Right? Mm-hmm. Even the same neurons are being fired. Well, partly it's because sensory input from my skin is giving a veto signal, saying, look, buddy, look, Rama, Harry is being poked, Empathize by all means, know what it's like to be, to be poked, but don't actually experience it and shout out, just be silly. Don't feel the pain. Right? Okay, so so far so good. So these, these, these neurons are dissolving the barrier between self and others as far as quality of, of pain is concerned. But, but so what? All right, so here is a patient who is excruciating phantom pain in his, in his phantom hand. There is no hand. He wants to massage his phantom fingers. He can't do that because there's no, there's no fingers. So he simply watches his wife massage her hand, and he gets a phantom massage in his phantom limb, and that relieves the pain as effectively as mirrors. So we need to do controlled experiments, clinical trials on this. But here's another example of a clinical spin-off of mirror neurons. Mm-hmm. But I'm jumping ahead of myself. Going back to your question of culture, mm-hmm. surely an important p- part of cultural evolution which freed hominids from the constraints of natural selection, at least in its very simple form, is imitation learning. I mean, a, a polar bear has, it takes hundreds of thousands of years to evolve a fur coat through laborious natural selection. But a human mother slaying a polar bear, skinning it, maybe learned it through trial and error, a child watching her and uses mirror neuron system, I say mirror neuron system because not just the mirror neurons, to imitate her behavior, and that behavior is transmitted in one generation instead of evolving over hundreds of generations. So this surely must be origin of imitation learning is an important source of what we call cultural transmission of knowledge. So I was speculating on that aspect of mirror neurons and arguing that it was a major step in evolution of transmission of culture, but not obviously not the only step. 
I mean, yeah. it couldn't have been the only step because the great apes have mirror neurons, I'm sure, and monkeys do, we know for sure. They don't have great culture. So it may have been a necessary step, but not sufficient. You, you pointed out something a minute ago that I think is important, and that is the ability of parts of the brain to cut off, to stop going too far uh, in identifying with the what's going out that's not part of your body, basically. Talk a little about that, because there there is a tension in the brain to, on the one hand, uh, look outward and identify, but on the other hand, to draw lines that say, no, this is me and that's not me. Yeah, the me and not me distinction is still being studied in, 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 by many scientists throughout the world. It's a very tricky problem, uh, tricky philosophically, tricky scientifically. Um, one, one, one example that comes to mind is a study which I did with uh, Jalal Balan, who's a student of mine. And uh, what we found was that uh, we were looking at papers on uh, out-of-body experiences. Now, let's take mirror neurons again, in the front of the brain. They allow you to adopt an, another person's vantage point. So my mirror neurons allow me to adopt Harry's, your vantage point in the world, temporarily enact your view of the world. Right? create a simulation. But I don't feel myself drifting off and fusing into you. It's kind of silly thought, but that's what, that's what might, you, you might expect would happen. Partly that's because of anchoring provided my own body. So, so a chimp has, can, can, when watching another chimp, temporarily adopt the other chimp's point of view. A human can adopt this, even when you're not here. I can adopt another human being's point of view. I, I see myself rehearsing this evening's lecture in my mind. Uh, from an allocentric outsider's point of view. But I don't leave my body. That's sort of what, what you're asking. Mm-hmm. Partly the anchoring comes from the body itself, from afferents. And in fact, in, in a condition called sleep paralysis, where there's a complete deafferentation, temporary deafferentation of sensory impulses from the spinal cord to the brain, temporarily, while you're asleep, while you're in REM sleep, you do get out-of-body experiences. One-third of people in REM sleep experience out-of-body experiences they feel like alien, aliens are abducting them. They're outside their own body. This, we think, is caused by the mirror neurons being disinhibited. This may have given rise to the notion of disembodied souls, too, which is relevant to the lecture I'm going to give later today. Uh, let's talk now about synesthesia. You, you raised it a minute ago, yeah. because in, in the case of that, describe that condition, but also the insights it gave you about the brain. Yeah, there's another classic example of an anomaly. It doesn't fit mainstream thinking in science, and therefore it was ignored for 100 years. Described by Francis Galton in the 19th century, first cousin of Charles Darwin. He noticed that some people in the general population, he thought it was very rare, people thought it was 1 in 1,000, 1 in 10,000, we find 1 in 50 people as this, have this peculiarity that is when they look at a number, black and white number, black letter, black number 5 or 6 or 7, printed on a white page, they see the number colored. There are two kinds of synesthetes. They're called projectors and associators. The projectors literally see the color. If you go by their description, they'll say, the five is, I know it's black, but it looks red to me. And it even has a halo of red around it, like a neon light. Some people say, it, it looks, I know it's black, but it looks beautiful pink color to me. So this is a classic example of anomaly. First of all, wh- why are they saying this? Are they crazy? Secondly, who gives a damn? You know, 
who cares whether these people see, see numbers as colored? I can answer both those questions. We embarked on this about 10 years ago for the first time. And first of all, we showed they're not crazy to see the colors. I'm going to touch on this in my talk this evening. They see the colors perfectly clearly, just like you and I do. You can show this by various experiments. For example, if you have the number five, and it's red, and uh, you're, you're surrounded by a bunch of twos, you're, you're black five surrounded by a number of black twos. Normal people find it very difficult to spot the black five mm -hmm. because it looks very much like the twos, made up of the same vertical horizontal components. So you've got a matrix of fives with a two in the middle. You ask them, is there a two in the display or not? And they find it very difficult to answer that or take several seconds, maybe 20, 30 seconds. These people say, oh, I see a red, red two in the middle of green fives in a forest of green. And they say, do it much more quickly, half or twice the speed of normal people. And this shows that we're dealing with the genuine, authentic phenomenon. Uh, Jamie Ward in London has replicated this result. This is what got us going initially. Mm -hmm. And and then what, what causes the phenomenon of synesthesia? It turns out that the brain is, of course, modular, the adult brain. But in the early infancy and in the fetus, almost every part is connected to every other part. There's tremendous redundancy of connections. There are pruning genes which then prune off excess connections between adjacent modules to create the modular architecture that characterizes the adult brain. So you get, for example, an area for color in fusiform gyrus in the temporal lobes, a little brain structure called the fusiform gyrus. There's an area for color called V4. There's an area for number right next to it, num visual appearance of numbers. And these are normally segregated in the adult brain, but if there's a defect in the pruning gene, they get connected. And there's, there's a mutation in the pruning gene. There's hyperconnectivity between adjacent brain regions. And if this hyperconnectivity is expressed by transcription factors exclusively in the fusiform gyrus, which can happen, you get number color synesthesia. Every time you see a black and white number, it activates a number area, and it cross-activates the color area in the brain, evoking a particular color. So 5 is red, 6 is blue, 7 is green. So we have a solution to the mystery. So we did the perceptual experiments, then we did the brain imaging experiments, and showed that we're on the right track. But now comes the speculative part. What has got to do with creativity? Mm -hmm. Well, think about creativity. What do all artists, poets, and novelists have in common? It turns out that synesthesia is seven or eight times more common among artists, poets, and novelists than in the general population. Why would that be? What's the link between synesthesia and artists, poets, and novelists, and genes pruning excess connections? Well, if the pruning, defective pruning gene it's expressed not just in the fusiform gyrus. If it's expressed in the fusiform gyrus, you get a color number synesthesia. It's a quirky phenomenon. If it's expressed throughout the brain, you get a, and you then assume that concepts and ideas are also represented in far-flung brain regions, then you get a propensity to link seemingly unrelated ideas and thoughts, which is the basis of metaphor. For example, when I say it is the east and Juliet is the sun, if I say Juliet is the sun, you don't say she's a glowing ball of fire. You say she's warm like the sun, radiant like the sun, nurturing like the sun, rises in the bed like the sun rises in the east. Your brain forms all these associations. And if you assume then that concepts like a young woman like Juliet and sun and radiance and all that are also in different brain regions, you've got more connections between different brain regions, you've got more scope for linking seemingly unrelated ideas, which is the basis of metaphor, something that George Lakoff here at Berkeley has published on extensively. So, so from a apparent pathology that you prove to be a pathology, you come 
to an understanding of the causes and the brain. And then from that, in addition to saying, yeah, this is real and this is what's going on, you wind up speculating, and it is just speculation, that that, that we can get to the big questions. Correct. Namely, what is creativity? Is a process like the one we've identified going on uh, in, in, to a greater extent in the brain and helping us say, understand what a creativity is. Exactly. So from the particular to the more broader, broad general questions. And, and you gives you an experimental foothold for understanding things like metaphor, which is so, being too elusive. So, so in a way, what, what's really kind of interesting is one has this conversation with you is all of these factors that led you to become a neurologist and a study of the brain build pieces of a platform from which you can not only look at pathologies but also speculate about the big questions. Yeah, absolutely. And neurology is one of the few professions where you can do that, behavioral neurology and cognitive neuroscience. Well, anytime you see a patient with a disorder, um, it's a curious disorder, you come face to face with the fundamental questions that philosophers have raised about the mind and brain mm -hmm. since, since uh, for the last 2,000 years. And, and you, you in, in the last chapter in your book, you talk about consciousness. Think aloud here and explain to us how you're thinking about consciousness based upon what you've learned about the brain thus far. Well, unfortunately, it's a loosely used word. And somebody, Stuart Sutherland once said, it's, consciousness is a topic about which a great deal has been written, but nothing is known. <laughs> and I feel I'm in the, uh, sympathetic to his view. Uh, there are two different questions. One is the question of qualia, how you can look at something red like a red apple, a neurons firing away, little wisps of jelly in your brain. Where does the red sensation come from? An ancient question has still not been solved. Then there's the question of self, the person who experiences a qualia. The two aspects of the same problem. Now, we think of self as one monolithic entity, but in fact, there's many components to it. A sense of continuity in time and space, you know, your calendar, your sense of being anchored in a body, your sense of uh, unity, despite a diversity of sense impressions and memories, you feel like one person, and so on and so forth. I think each of these components can be studied by neurologists looking at patients or doing brain imaging. And finally, some sort of big picture will emerge. But at this stage, we're still studying the basic phenomenology, trying to, it's phenomena that are tangentially related to the problem of consciousness, not a head-on collision with the problem. Your, your whole question about what the self is, 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 is called into question. When, we, when, you saw, when you see patients with a disorder called anosognosia or somatoparaphrenia, the patients with right hemisphere stroke ordinarily have left side completely paralyzed, but in subset, and they agree they're paralyzed, they're bothered by it, they want to be treated. But a subset of these patients who are paralyzed Here's a patient with complete paralysis of the left arm and left leg, an elderly woman. Been paralyzed for the last week or so, right hemisphere stroke. Normally, 90% of them, 95% of them, will complain about their paralysis. Now, there's about 1% or 2% who are blissfully indifferent to the paralysis. They say, is anything wrong with you, Mrs. D? And they say, no, I'm fine. Hmm. Can you move your right hand? Yes, I can move my right hand. What about your left hand? I can move my left hand. Mrs. D, what is this? Oh, that's, that's my mother's hand. Mm -hmm. She'll say, with a completely straight face. Your mother's hand, I say. Where is your mother? Oh, she's hiding under the table. 
These are intelligent people. There's nothing wrong with their intellect. And they're not obviously emotionally disturbed. But she makes up some completely absurd reason for her mother not being visible. She's under the table. Here comes the best part. I say, okay, can you touch my nose with your left hand? Sorry, with your right hand? Of course she does. Can you touch my nose with your left hand? She does this. Now this implies that somebody in there, despite her denial that the left arm is paralyzed, knows that the left arm is paralyzed. Otherwise, why would you go and grab it? Somebody in there also knows this is her left hand, not her mother's. Otherwise, why should she grab it? So there are many layers of iterations that go into composing what we call the self. And this is brought home to me very vividly with this patient. So, so in a way, you're learning that the brain does not like what you call disequilibriums. It comes through plasticity to a way to configure itself so it makes up for the deficit? Is that, is that fair? Well, there's some sort of coherencing mechanism, undoubtedly, and we don't quite clearly understand what's going on, especially in disorders like endosognosia and somatoporephrenia. So I, I, I sort of not studied it in detail for that very reason. Um, but the reason I raised it is not because you've studied it or understood it, but to point out these enigmas in, in neuroscience, surely relevant to understanding the concept of self. Some cases, like another example I'd like to give you, which where we have solved the problem, I think, is apotomnophilia, unpronounceable name. So we changed it to equally un- unpronounceable xenomelia, which means a patient, or a person, I should say, they don't regard themselves as patients, the problem. All his life has harbored a deep-seated urge to have his left arm removed. He's a perfectly normal person, led a normal life in society, held a job, had a family, had friends, uh, had a good sense of humor. Was, uh, I recently saw a med- school dean from a medical school with, with the syndrome. He came to see me at the age of 70, after five years after retirement. And he said he's always had this urge to have his arm removed. He wants to understand what's going on. He doesn't want to be cured. But he really wants to get his arm removed. He doesn't see anything abnormal about that. And this, it turns out, is not... It's rare, but not quite as rare as people thought. You go into the internet, you can find people with this, quote-unquote, this disorder or this wish to have their arm removed. What's going on in their brain? So I guess you have to wait for the lecture. <laughs> well, one final question. You wear so many hats, philosopher, medical doctor, neurologist, just to name a few. How do you separate... Uh, on the one hand, these roles, but on the other hand, learn from each of them because you, you have to be clear that when you're a philosopher, you're speculating. Yeah. It's not science. You sort of have to keep the compartments quite distinct in your, in your brain, in your mind. When you're seeing a patient as a patient, I don't see patients clinically, but I do help with the treatment, devise new treatments. And when you see him as a patient, it's, it's a very different mindset when, when you're doing experiments on them. And uh, that, that, that's very important, obviously. And the philosopher aspect of it, that, that, again, is yet again is a different matter. Uh, you, I haven't thought about it in detail, so I'm, I'm not sure I, how easy it is to answer that question. Well, on that note, I, I want to thank you very much uh, for being here and helping us understand how you understand Uh, the brain and this uh, emerging field of neurology. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.